Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we welcome back Jared Murphy. Thanks for coming on, Jared. Thanks for having me again. I love being on. It's a great time. Yeah, you're, you're coming quite the regular on my show. Yeah, well, there's so much to talk about. You're such a great host as far as the uh, depth of conversation. We're never just scratching the surface. It's always fun to like dive into things. Yeah. So, so um, I say, let's start first. This, we were just talking about before we started recording this wall they found in Colombia. Yeah. It's crazy, right? This yeah, wall. I can't believe is, this. Yeah. It's eight miles long and it's, it's looking to be like 20 something to 50 feet of rock art of painted on multiple colors it's i guess if you go look for this there's a lot of colors out there that aren't just uh you know they're not just red there's i've seen some close-ups there's yellows there's orange there's uh a lot to say about of course what's in the pictographs i mean they've already pointed out there's extinct mastodons Mm -hmm. it's crazy uh this is not a small find we're talking I mean, eight miles long, 20 to 50 feet tall and extinct animals. So they're saying that this dates to at least 12,500 years ago, which just rams us right up to the younger Dryas or what some people might refer to as the great biblical flood. Uh, The theory uh, of the younger Dryas, just that there was definitely a catastrophe in that time frame, And this, this wall could easily be just after, or uh, some of the articles that I've read say that this could be up to 17,000 years old and it would put us pre-Younger Dryas or that they started at pre-Younger Dryas. I mean, we can't even assume that they started at one end of the wall and worked left or right mm-hmm. or up or down. I mean, for all we know, they drew this uh, over many, many years, kind of like maybe the stations of the cross for a Catholic church, you know, where you have 12 different uh, stations where you stop and you consider the crucifixion. And so maybe, maybe they used one section of this wall for one thing, and then they would travel um, down a mile and put something else. Uh, I I would just love if they would digitize digitize this and get it up for everyone to look at, because in some of our prior conversations, we've talked about genetic memory and that we all have that. There's also a group, collective human consciousness. So the idea that there is a possibility you could just have a triggered memory, even though you might not have anything uh, to do with Colombia or South America or uh, ruins or just nothing on your mind about cave art. But uh, one of these pictures could end up giving you like a sense of familiarity or a flashback or a deja vu. You never know. And it's always really fun to look at our past as more of a search and rescue than a search and recovery and getting out digitized images of this, I hope is something that gets done. Yeah, this is really fascinating because it does show us with a lot of animals, um, 
I mean, I don't know how long they've been extinct for. It doesn't really say, but like giant sloths and giant horses, Ice Age horses. Um, yeah. A lot of people don't know the camel uh, came from North America. Hmm. Uh, it's not a, a native. It's actually from uh, from Africa. It's actually from North America. And, and we have a series like uh, a lot of animals in North America and here now in South America, all along with what we call the Clovis people, which is this broad stroke name. And it's, I think it's collapsing finally in the theories, but for the longest time, uh, there was a, a land bridge between uh, Siberia, Russia to America through Alaska. And the theory is that the only way that people got to America was through this Alaska land bridge of ice. And prior to that, there just really wasn't anything going on. But we know that that's not true, but those people were labeled the Clovis. And we know it's not true because we're finding sites all over America for many, many years now and in Mexico that show uh, like, for instance, the uh, Waylaco, Mexico, Virginia Steam McIntyre's uh, work that was re-spotlighted. Uh, she's a was a rising geologist and her work was spotlighted by Michael Cremo in Forbidden Archaeology that there is a site in, in northern Mexico that uh, U.S. geologists were brought in for archaeologists and they dated that site. This was anatomically correct humans these this was a campfire it was like either a working village or a camp just a a, a very permanent campsite and they were able to 100 date it to being a minimum of over 265,000 years wow. and that is not a snapshot of south america or or central america or america and so the clovis uh, this term given to, to this just this like very busy, uh, busy, busy tribe that just came down through the Bering Land Bridge uh, in, in the Ice Age. And then suddenly they built every single ruin in Central and South America and that there was only a couple million, maybe six million. You know, when we were growing up, it was said that maybe in ancient times there was like maybe four to six million people in the whole area. And you and I talked about the Guatemalan LIDAR scans showing that just in a five, uh, 800 mile area of a 5,000 square, well, a, a rectangular LIDAR scanning program that started a couple of years ago and it made international news about a year and a half ago that and it was featured in National Geographic that they had found 60,000 buildings and not small buildings. We're not talking like sheds or family homes in the suburbs that are ranch or rambler style houses. We're talking uh, over a hundred pyramids, uh, massive super freeways, uh, large, large complexes. And they did it in an 800 square kilometer area that showed well, from what archaeologists have now stated, that we have grossly, grossly underestimated the populations in South America. And you have to think of this uh, because there's something called knowledge filtration, where there's a standard academic model. It, it, the joke is that archaeology changes with the death of one old, old archaeologist at a time. <laughs> and <laughs> that's a, a morbid, but and, and or it's just the snail trail of 
uh, paradigm shifts instead of working off the facts. What they do is they fit the they have a standard academic theoretical model that we have been pushing facts into to prop up. And it's, it's terrible. There's so many facts on the table now that show that everything we learned is wrong and that, that, well, everything is wrong in reference to the timeline we've been given. And so in this case, you have Roman galleons well-established off the coast of Brazil. We have the Chinese and Asia traveling to South America and Central America. That's, that was a known fact even by paleoanthropologists at the turn of the century. The father of South American archaeology knew this, Max Uli, uh, German, and he, I mean, he talks in lectures and papers, and you can get copies of this. It's in my book. Uh, he talks about, well, we know the Chinese were here. And, and what's more exciting is that he also mentions, and so does Michael Cremo, about mastodons being butchered at campsites. And so it's not just a house of cards when Virginia Steen McIntyre and the uh, group of geologists that identify a 260,000 year old campsite with, for anatomically correct humans in Northern Mexico. Uh, then we have literally tens of thousands of buildings in Guatemala that shouldn't exist. And we know that the, the Mayans and the Olmecs and the Toltecs in Central America, that a lot of these pyramids that we go visit and tour are made out of large basalt, quartz, megalithic blocks that have been restacked with old mud blocks or just smaller, simpler blocks where you don't build like that. I have a background in 20 years in uh, structural and uh, renovation, restoration, remodeling, like uh, doing an addition where you have to change maybe 10 major structural components and make sure it doesn't fall down as you disassemble and reassemble. It's very complex. You know, building from scratch is a lot easier than identifying how did someone build something. And with a more discerning eye, and you look at some of these ruins as the narrative shifts uh, with shows like this and what's going on, we can see that a lot of these buildings in Central America that are accredited to the Mayans or in, or the Aztecs and you know South America, they're all adapted constructions that were part of a larger, more advanced, uh, complex, large blocked, megalithic, cymatic, polygonal constructions, and they've been rebuilt. And then here we are with this eight mile long wall. Uh, showing mastodons, just like Virginia Steen McIntyre site, and just like the father of South American archaeology is talking about, well, you know, they found these sites in South America, not even Central America, not Huaylaco, Mexico, but in Central in, in South America, they're finding mastodons that have been carved on. And these are paleoanthropological finds that date back over 120 years, and they're ignored. And, and when I say ignored, it's not like there's a, a sheet paper handed out at archaeological school that says, and I'm saying that to, you know, just for, I'm taking a little knock at it, but it's not like they hand out a list and go, don't ever talk about these things. What they do is to change the narrative and to, or to keep the narrative on the theory of out of Africa and the theory of uh, everybody was banging rocks 50,000 years ago. And this ties into this wall is that what they do is they say, they just don't they don't teach you as an archaeologist, paleoanthropologist. They just don't bring up 
that there's a site over here that's 270,000 years old. But they don't bring up that, you know, we're pretty clear now. Now they can't now, now that the Guatemalan LIDAR scans have like made international news and they've chosen to prop it up. They have now, uh, archaeologists on record in that find have stated, we have grossly, grossly underestimated the populations of South America. We could easily say, now this is them stating this publicly to National Geographic, uh, a magazine that has on both sides been open and withholding of not standard academic models. And they said, we could safely assume there was 15 to 20 million in South America, but but their estimate, or in Central America, and that's just one area, that's significantly beyond the 6 million that they maybe thought was in the whole, like the whole continent. And it's a significant number, but it doesn't address the fact that here's a city structure that has 60,000 buildings. And what about small buildings that LIDAR doesn't identify that have been dusted and gone away that were burned or made out of wood and, and rotted away or stone that was carried off and rebuilt for another society or culture? It just wasn't, or it's just a pile. So this snapshot of not only the LIDAR scans, but of this wall it's important because on one hand, people think, well, the story of us, we've kind of all figured it out. Well, when you have the Nazca lines in Peru with giant pictographs the size, like multiple acres in size that a uh, couple summers ago, we found 33 uh, giant pictographs that were uh, uh, geoglyphs is what you call them when they're the size of football fields mm -hmm. and they found 30 of them and then that was like wow how did you miss 30 from the air but then uh just a couple weeks ago there was actually another article out about another dog or cat like or fox looking uh, again, a giant geoglyph that nobody noticed and here we are a week ago with these uh uh, pictures of this amazing eight mile long wall of a society that is either writing down what they're seeing within their own space. They could be writing down uh, what they know of uh, nearby villages. We, I, I mean, to, to unpack all the symbols in this wall, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. I was just looking at it. One of the, um, one of the creatures, the animals that they have portrayed on the wall is an ice age horse, uh, which would not have been, would have, the last time it was on our continent was 17,000 years ago. And it says 17,000 years ago, we would have been looking at proto-mongoloid. Yeah. Do you like how they say that? It's like, why? So they, they have to say, they have to, okay. So this is something for everyone to start discerning is it's easy to, I'm not saying you're going to be an instant expert, but it's really easy for you to start discerning the the narrative that what there's the narrative they're trying to maintain. And then there's just the truth of what's going on. I mean, this is a house of cards that hasn't just fallen over. I mean, it is a pile of flaming leaves on a, I mean, there's, it's ridiculous. So there's, they're saying that, well, back then it just would have been rock banging Neanderthals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, I mean, a proto-mongoloid doesn't look like they were very advanced, not advanced enough to make this wall. Right. And so here's what we know. They're willing to say in the article that it's at least 12,500 years old, but they're showing animals that we think have been extinct 
for, you know, uh, there's not in, in, in our observations of our one, we have an incomplete fossil record. We have an incomplete paleoanthropological record. We do not have a straight, it would be easier for you to uh, grab a book and poke a pinhole in it. And then you tell me what the book is about from the pinhole. That's, <laughs> that's our level of, now, of the things we found, I mean, there are some very detailed uh, pieces. It's not that when we find something, we don't look at it or we can't under unpack it. Sometimes we can't because we don't have the technology. We don't do a lot of ancient genetic testing. G genetic testing is expensive and ancient genome sequencing has to be handled differently than are modern like it's not the same thing as you and i going to 23 and me or whatever it's called or <laughs> you know it's i don't i you know for you to get tested for ancient genomes um things that have come up on the radar recently are hey we have x amount of neanderthal we have x amount of denise event we have x amount of a human mystery ancestor that we haven't identified and something else for people to consider right now is in latin america and this is why when they say, well, that would have been proto-humans, it's like, okay, uh, Gobekli Tepe. Mm -hmm. So anatomically correct humans who built very large, complex megalithic pillars at a site, which by the way, there's another, there's six, when I wrote my book, uh, there were six Tepes, uh, pot-bellied hills, including Gobekli, that Klaus Schmidt uh, had was the lead archaeologist from Germany, and he died sadly just a couple within the last couple of years of a heart attack uh, while he was on vacation from the site. But he had spent over forty years working on Gobekli Tepe. They have five percent of it dug up, five percent, and so there are these mysterious, large, very well built megalithic pillars, and then there's stone rocks stacked in between the pillars. So even an early assessment of this site with only 5% of it dug up, I personally am willing to go on the record and say, as someone with a background in construction and watching a hundred and, you know, like watching years of people adapt and readapt, repair, improve, restore, remodel, add on to existing structures, sometimes an uncountable number of times, I can tell you that you don't build large 25 foot tall, 30 foot tall uh, megalithic pillars that are well built and then throw up river rock between the pillars. You don't, you just don't do that. Mm -hmm. And so they just announced a few days ago that they found another Tepe that they are on record as saying is it's in Turkey. And they're saying that it is thousands, at least thousands of years older than Gobekli and Gobekli is actually when I first started working on my book, which took four years to do uh, early on, not knowing what to keep mentally and whatnot. I'm always looking for genetic testing. I'm always looking for uh, uh, any biological carbon 14 optical stimulus, lumina, you know, OSL dating, anything that can uh, together, carbon 14, carbon 13, every kind of carbon dating you can think of anything that can uh, identify an age. And one of the things that stuck out early about Gobekli Tepe was 
a 36,000 year old leaf or organic material that they found, but it, it come out of the narrative where, excuse me, you have this society that's uh, definitely at least 12,000 years old. So for, so they went from saying mm -hmm. that it could be 36,000 years old, which sounds outrageous to getting on standard at standard academia. It's like they show up with a lawyer or something and say, look, you can't <laughs> say it's, you just, you just can't say 36,000, but we're willing to give you 12 to 17,000. You can, we're just going to have to go back that far. And so then the narrative, even for alternative researchers is, uh, and I've heard it mutate in just the last year where we could go back and hear all these different podcasts, interviews, YouTube, you fill in the blank. And they've gone from saying it's 36 to, you know, 12 to 36,000 to 12 to 17,000 to 12,000, uh, approximately 12,000. Well, and then for a long time, it was fun to say the soundbite of, well, it's at least 10,000 years older than Stonehenge. And and that's not true either, but we can't go down that rabbit hole right now because Stonehenge is much, much older than uh -huh. it was given a date. But that that aside, here's Gobekli Tepe and now a new find three days ago that said, well, we know it's thousands of years older. Well, here we are with pictographs, with people uh, hunting and gathering in an area that when I started working on, it's not aliens worse, it's us discovering our lost history. The very first thing that caught my attention about uh, the tr of all the house of card facts that like Huelaco, Mexico, just as one. And there are many, many, many finds in Canada, in the United States, in South America, in Central America, in Africa, in Siberia, in Europe. There are many finds where, uh, and now recently in Australia off the coast, they found some Aboriginal uh, work underwater. So what we know is that our coastlines aren't where they were. And I was overwhelmed and fascinated by something called terra preta. It's an engineered soil. And what that means is it has to be made by man. And it is incredibly rich for growing. It is uh, able to filter heavy metals, fertilizers, carbon dioxide. And right now we're talking about carbon footprints. Who doesn't want a soil on earth that can filter carbon dioxide? Anyone? <laughs> yeah. Anyone? And I think it could so help. the soil, what? That could help us out. <laughs> yeah. And clearly what was going on that there was an advanced human. There's a lot of evidence that there is, a, there was at least one advanced human society on the planet. They built megalithically with cymatic polygonal constructions that not only muted or canceled earthquakes, but they engineered the soil like Terra Preta and in Europe and in Russia and in the United States and in Canada, it's called Chernozems. We mm -hmm. have vast amounts of soil that unexplainably have been, well, they are in that somebody made them, but they exist in areas that there weren't supposed to be, according to standard academic model, there was not supposed to be settled people. So this is exciting and super cool because here in Colombia, uh, with people drawing on a wall, showing animals extinct to 17,000. Mind you, it's not like they drew the last one. It's not like they drew the last horse. It's like, well, shit, there's four left. Let's put up a wall. Let's like right. draw a picture. You know, it's like, who's extinct this year? Right. And yeah, so we're I'm probably being a little bit liberal saying 17,000 years. Right. It could we, be we, we, we would be going back maybe to almost Neanderthal. Oh, Neander. So here's what's interesting. Uh, this is what's 
like there's this weird duality between uh, standard academia, which is just like, here's a narrative. We were all banging rocks 50,000 years ago. Humans uh, all came from Africa, which by the way, it's a theory. And it's important because we are way past the precipice of enough uh, factual evidence to show that the, there, there, there are more revised, I think, accurate theories, which include a model that actually does not include Africa as the last place uh, we came from. And there were archaeologists theorizing even 120 years ago that, that the Garden of Eden, that, that the idea of the biblical story uh, came from uh, paleoanthropological evidence of Argentina, that there was definitely an out of uh, South America origin story, uh, not, not, um, not a story told like the Bible, but the theory started based on evidence that it was possible that, at least based on what these paleoanthropologists were finding uh, at the turn of the uh, 1900, that there was possibly uh, this location as the start of humanity. But back to Neanderthal and Denisovan, these two strains of humans show uh, breeding, interbreeding with humans at 50,000 years ago. Now, based on the there, there's different reasons for that genetically, based on percentages of of certain genes and everything else. But here's the deal: we don't have a crap load of Denisovan or Neanderthal people, but we also don't have a complete to become a fossil is an exception. We don't have every human body uh, that we've ever created. And here's another mystery: so in South America, not very well. Not that far from this eight-mile wall is a group of people called the Paracas. And we've talked about them before, but it's super the important Paracas to bring skulls. them up. Yeah. So these elongated skulls where they were not smashed by boards. These are people who were born with a massive head and their necks are different. Their suture lines in their skull, that cool pattern with the three, you know, with the cross on your head. They they didn't have that. So these people have and and brian forrester did some genetic testing on them but here's the real mystery uh his testing points that these people are from eurasia from and that would be near uh crimea is where they're from so basically uh lower half of a troubled area uh controlled by the russians mm -hmm. and but this is where the paracas are probably from at least based on his testing. And what's also important is in the early 70s, they did blood testing. And if the theory of the land bridge was true from the beginning, uh, then you wouldn't have different blood types because you don't have redheads, red-bearded people, red-headed people. You don't have any of them in South America. Everyone's supposed to be like no five o'clock shadow, no shaving. Everyone has black hair. Everyone's the same. But that's not the truth of it. Uh, Veracocha, the god, has a beard, is a redhead, is a ginger. And the Paracas have red hair, some of them. Some have blonde. And there are tribes, even in South America, that had blonde-haired and blue eyes. And some of that dates to uh, more recent interactions with possibly uh, the Knights Templar and the Vikings. But the Paracas are interesting because they're mummies. 
because the Nazca area is so dry, they have been found based on testing by standard academia to be at least some of the mummies are at least 9,000 years old. And what's really sad is that right now the area that the Paracas are found in, there's so many bodies that there's just laying there. The bones are still laying in situ uh, exactly where they were buried or maybe migrated through dust or storms or, or floods or whatever. But some of the Paracas are 9,000 years old. And that means there could be even older Paracas, but these are people with these physical anomalies, which show at least six genetic markers that are different, but back to the real mystery. Guess how many colleges have done genetic work on the Paracas? You none. will be none. <laughs> none, that I, <laughs> none that I've found because they are a massive, I, not they're not just an elephant in the room they're an elephant unicorn in the room uh the paracas should not exist they are naturally born where are all the biologists where are all the paleoanthropologists that no brainer go grab the paracas and start testing uh the genomes the sequencing and everything else because we have a period of time starting at 50,000 years ago and underwater off of Cuba, there is a megalithic city, a very large megalithic city that was found accidentally while they were looking for gold, Spanish gold. And all this stuff are fun rabbit holes. So for everybody listening that doesn't want to just listen, write some stuff down, go do your internet searches. And the reality is that this city off the coast of Cuba, even if you account for hydroponic, uh, hydrostatic uh uh, thinking about pot, hydrostatic uh, shifting of the tectonic plates that would cause rising and falling of portions of the planet. This city off of Cuba, coincidentally, would be above water about 50,000 years ago. And it's not like they built it. It's a big, it has pyramids. It has walls, at least mm -hmm. the section of the city that we can see from the photo. And the And the thing is, that's just what we can see. And so we're talking about a city that at 50,000 years ago would have been above water, would have been occupied by people, including the, so the Paracas are physically and genetically different than Denisovan, Neanderthal. They have these really long, they look alien, right? Uh, people like to say that they're alien, but they're not alien. They're just different. And what's interesting then is that if you take their genome, Denisovan, Neanderthal, which are also mixed in with humans at 50,000 years ago, we can say unequivocally that they're, we're talking about four or five races of humans that were on the planet simultaneously and not linearly. They were not progressive. They were mm -hmm. not, uh, and, and to the level of intelligences uh, by CC, by general, I, this is kind of silly, but by measurement, uh, Neanderthal were considered to be uh, denser boned, uh, stronger, that their muscle structure and their brain was larger than humans. But yet you got the Paracas and the Paracas are clearly not just from Peru because we have elongated skulls that are found on almost every continent. And so again, we have all these different races all simultaneously on the planet. And then something that never sat, sat well with me as a kid 
why do we have Asian people? Why do we have white people? Why do we have black people? Why do we have within all of them, uh, like the native peoples, the Mayans, the Olmecs, the Toltecs, the the Aztecs, why all the different races? I was fascinated about this as a kid. And it just didn't sit well with me that, oh, yeah, well, people just got isolated and then they just turned into a different race. That, 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 or we have the stories of creation. And, and I don't mean Zachariah Stitchin stories, mm-hmm. but I mean, we have the creation stories of the Sumerians. We have the creation stories of the Bible. We have the creation stories of the Hindu Vedas which mind you are so many thousands of years older than the stories of the Bible. And it's not respected well by Westerners. And I think it needs a lot, although it's been spotlighted a lot more by a lot of different shows and researchers. I do think India and the Vedas and that entire religion needs to be respected more as a Uh historical. You think that one is closest to the truth? I think they, yeah. So one of the things that we all have to remember is that every post-flood story by every post-flood culture are survivor cultures. They are cataclysm survivors. And I don't believe that any of them were nothing more than the inheritors of where they built. And they were the inheritors of declining uh, information and math and knowledge and science. They are the remnants and or survivors of a that younger driest cataclysm that could have been natural and and could have been a weaponized disaster of war and suffering from that. It could have been both. And we don't know that, but we do know that the dynastic Egyptians did not build the majority of they rebuilt and they adapted Mm -hmm. what we call Egypt, but they didn't build a lot of the original structures like the Sphinx, uh, the pyramid, uh, well, the great pyramids. And there's a number of temples and structures that were adapted, but here here we have And and do you think those were maybe built by uh, Atlanteans or Lumerians? Yeah, so uh, Lumeria, I want to bring it up for everybody, is that so the, the... as you get into the subject, it's super fun. You hear about Atlantis and it's described by Plato who really got it from Solon and you have Lumeria, which is an I or Kumar or Kumaria. There, there, there is a large continent and I actually have a map and I do include it as a grayed out area. Cause I do want it on people's minds that there could have been a continent that connected Madagascar, India and Australia. And so there is a story of the Lumerians as possibly possibly being Atlanteans. And then the idea of Atlantia was and that Atlanteans traveled to London. Uh, well, what would have been, well, Paris and London in the, in the time frame, but it would have been, you know, it, it, it all dates to where the younger Dryas happened that or close to it. And the theory was that, uh, these different societies are the remnant high technology societies. And I, th- I think that that's like one of our uh, Leonard Nimoy in search of 1970s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our Victorian to modern time, those are our stories to explain to ourselves that there was a much more advanced human society here on the planet. And that is true. 
but were they specifically Atlanteans or Lumerians? I think it's more important to point out that Lumeria represents one of many areas on this world, including Doggerland in, Doggerland in Ireland and Europe, which is the missing millions of miles of all this land that was full of rivers and streams and uh, would have been housed and would have been lived in and it would have gone all the way to Scotland and all the way to France and the Baltic uh, Sea would have been just really a little lake and the map of Europe, Doggerland is something to look at, Indonesia, New Zealandia, and I'm not talking hundreds of millions of years ago, but in the last, I'm talking Doggerland existed even 6,000 years ago. So tying it all back to 50,000 years ago, you're very different. You're looking at the very central areas, Great Britain, Ireland, Scotland, uh, France. Uh, they lost vast amounts of land in the Baltic near Finland and Denmark and all that area. It's all gone. And along the American coastlines, uh, the Caribbean was more of a lake. That city off of Cuba was well above ground. And one of the things we need to know about that, that things sink, but they also rise. And so when it comes to Atlantis, I have to give credit to, uh, for sure, uh, Jimmy from Bright Insight. Uh, that guy did uh, out of this park home run two-part series about Atlantis and what he did Unlike, and it's worth watching. I don't care if what I tell you, you guys should, people should check it out, but it's a two-part series on Atlantis. At least it was two-part the last time I watched it. But what it points out is the, if you want to uh, internet search the eye of Africa, it's in Northern Africa. It's about, seven and a half thousand feet above sea level now but it has the correct identical concentric rings of what was described by solon of atlantis mm -hmm. and 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 because the I, there's two separate ideas that are important there's the idea of a high-tech ancient human culture and then there's the idea of atlantis itself that it was a single entity place and i think that pre-flood that there was a worldwide advanced human culture. But I do think that sometime in greater antiquity, there was some sort of weaponized disaster where along with the physical uh, cataclysm that these more advanced humans retreated. And ultimately one could theorize that they did come out of hiding and dynastic peoples like the Aztecs and the Egyptians and the Greeks had taken over what was once their more advanced megalithic constructions and they had readapted them. And because it was a smaller society, we could come for full circle and say, well, maybe Atlantis was their stronghold, maybe Lumeria, maybe that there was just so few of them that when the guy with the man satchel, Veracocha, went to South America and taught them how to farm after the great catastrophe and all the stories went for the Aztecs that Veracocha, the god, a red-headed, red-bearded dude, shows up with a man satchel based on their drawings. <coughs> Excuse me. And taught them everything they needed to know. Well, maybe that was the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes makes sense. Um also, like, like after like the flood and St. Lumeria and Atlantis get wiped out, it would also make sense that the survivors probably would have scattered. Right. And so 
maybe people there's I'm writing a second book about rock cut ruins. I'm going to dive a little more deep into this megalithic society would have left very large mining uh, remnants that basically may look more like natural mountains now, but if they were 100,000, 200,000, a million year old mining areas, they might just look like mountains. And at the same time, if you're an advanced group of humans and you cover the whole globe, but there's just not that many left of you, or perhaps like the Paracas were weirdly really good with textiles. Think of it as your grateful dead crowd that wanted to wear tie dye shirts and just get high and hang out on the beach. (laughs) The Paracas, if they Uh really are from Crimea and they're from Egypt and they're from the Greek areas and Malta, and they were part of that large cymatic polygonal, massive ancient high-tech society. And I, and by the way, it's kind of a weird thing. So when people are discerning this, think that when we say cymatic polygonal blocks, I want to remind people that we have those evidences and the technologies around building these constructions and engineered soil are incredibly complex. The measuring devices, the devices to build these giant, to cut these blocks, they all involve technology that is so outside of our conversation today. But it's weird to say a high-tech society and always reference big giant stones. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the physical pieces we have left. We also have math. We have things that have shown up in Sumerian cuneiform tablets that make no sense. We have all, uh, the Antikythera device as one example, but there's much older, more advanced uh things like engineered soil. And uh, so when we talk about this lost society, we have to remember that metal, plastic, glass, you know, things turn to dust, they rot, they mold. Um, Very simple. It's the exception to be a fossil. And so there's a lot of things that we can't say what the finished material on these giant uh, polygonal blocks look like. We can't, we don't know for sure. But Here's Atlantis uh, by Bright Insight. Uh, And I only know, I've never interviewed or talked to him personally, but from his uh, research, you have a map that the Greeks had of where they thought Atlantis was. You have the description of the concentric rings. And the Mm -hmm. Eye of Africa is in an area of North Africa that is quite unstable. It is not easily... uh, it's not possible to easily go to the eye of Africa uh, because of its uh, remote location and the nature of the politics of the area. It's dangerous. There are a couple of videos. Some people did venture out to it, but what we do know about it is that it has signs of, there were stories of elephants. Well, the elephant bones have been found there. There are stories of it being uh, concentric circles of bays for ships and salt water course because it was connected to the ocean and the eye of africa shows exactly that just like across almost like they're not kitty corner from each other but the eye of africa has all sorts of salt water um remnants even though it's almost eight thousand feet above sea level but it clearly was connected to the ocean and to a point so recently that 
geologically you can, uh, well, at least ar archaeologically, you can find all these creatures and shells and things in situ that show that this was a bay at some point. And then across at Lake Titicaca, which is at 13,000 feet, that's a saltwater lake. And, and one could argue that, oh, it's a naturally occurring saltwater lake because of the processes of the stones, et cetera, et cetera. But it has seahorses in it, mm. among other things. Which, and, and there's another whole theory that the middle of uh, Brazil was basically a giant lake and that it was also part of the ocean that was also human occupied. So I think it's super important to not dwell on the old adages and the romance of uh, aliens and uh, in the case of Atlantis as a source of high technology that it was Atlanteans. Uh, I think it's evolved in the last couple of years where people need to consider that it's a terminology to refer to this mystery uh, society that has nothing to do with the, ge the geographic position of Atlantis, but in reference to Atlantis, in reference to Solon, the eye of Africa is looking dead on as exactly where and what it could be. And it would be. Yeah, very, I'm very looking at a picture of it now. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it it's, does. You can see the rings. It's huge. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Space. That's yeah. And, and the, and it matches up to the, you know, over and over every time they say that the Greeks are speaking allegorically, that they're speaking just in rhythm and rhyme and prose and, or they're just talking figuratively. This eye of Africa measures almost to the T of what they describe the city look like. And it's identical. And again, it has the, the shells and the remnants of sea creatures to prove that this was a saltwater bayed. Um, so, so that would kind of debunk this other theory of it being some type of crater. Uh, yeah, no. So geologically speaking, it's not that it couldn't have been a collapsed, uh, uh, basically a, almost like a volcanic remnant. It's not that it couldn't have been uh, at some point, but it, but it was occupied. It was. It did mm -hmm. have uh, bays. It does have the remnants of elephants. And, uh, and again, this two-part documentary, and when you look at the maps of what was known when they described, when you nail it all together and then look at uh, the evidences line up, I think, I, I think it is a, it's beyond a strong enough argument that we should, if we could secure the area, it should be excavated extensively because I think that it's going to reveal uh, remnants of ships. Uh, it's going to have stuff in situ that is going to show that it was an occupied bay and that it, it it's clearly at a minimum it was occupied and it's showing pretty yeah because yeah, all the pictures i found of it they're all taken from far distance it looks like uh yeah so there's i don't i don't like see anything up close or from the inside view if you go to uh there's so bright Jimmy from bright insight does a documentary about it. And I don't know who the gentleman was, but he was specifically inspired, I think because of the bright insight documentary. And within a couple months, a guy 
And this is pre me publishing my book. And I'm like, man, I think this solves it. I do think that my point in bringing up Atlantis or Lumeria or Kumeria or Kumir uh, or Kumar, you know, the, the deal with all of it is that it's very easy to say, well, there's so many mysteries and when you compare it against the standard narrative, you're like, okay, well, aliens had to help us and aliens helped us build stuff. But it's not true if you just consider that anatomically correct humans have been here for tens of thousands of years longer than you thought. And at the same time, you have these giant factual uh, engineering marvels, including reading earthquake displacement, uh, that's seismic metamaterial research, uh, doing uh, giant stone spheres under whole cityscapes to mute earthquake as wave resonators, which have been proven just in a paper just in 2019. This is all new. Everything we're talking about is old new science. And when you when you table the facts of all these finds, it is clear that we have a massive amount of missing history that involves a very advanced human society that would have based on the wave and frequency technology would also have genetic technology. So, and they're engineering the soil and that means they're terraforming and they're building to last eons and ages. Because if you live through natural disasters, you build to withstand natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you build with 800, 900 ton stones if you weren't planning on surviving cataclysmic events right. because even, you even now like where i live like where i live where i live there's a lot of hurricanes so they build the houses to withstand hurricanes pretty pretty simple yeah and and it's like okay well we're gonna uh, we're gonna live here and uh, uh well 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 we're gonna get flooded and we're gonna get uh destroyed and so we're gonna have to do this mm -hmm. and so there there was a guy that had um watched Jimmy's uh, videos and he followed up with a visit and videoed his exploration of the eye of Africa. He actually went and it's pretty dang interesting just that the guy got himself out there and was actually able to look at the actual location and be there. But again, it's, apparent on the ground i'm wondering if this is it yeah this is i i gotta tell you i may have found it uh yeah this is the gentleman i haven't i uh thanks for reminding me about this by the way i i haven't had a chance to uh uh revisit this for a long time and it's the the recot structure uh it's called the recot structure evidence from the ground that the recot structure is atlantis um uh, for you, it's Indy Archaeologist. Uh, that's his, is that his name here? Uh, he's on YouTube. Yeah, this is him. His name is, is I guess he goes by Indy, I-N-D-I-E, Archaeology. And uh, he is, I'm, I'm going to send you a link for this video. Yeah, um, I'll put that in there with the episode too. Yeah, I, I think this guy, I so mean, when you have the... Man, when you got the balls to go, uh, I, I, I would love to shake this guy's hand. I mean, this is an area of Africa that is not stable. And, and I spent a month in South Africa and I loved every second of it. It's gorgeous. 
uh, I was at Stone Circle Lodge, uh, which is Michael Tellinger's place. And boy, I would, I would go in a second to, um, uh, I, I, I would go again, as soon as COVID's done, there are thousands of ruins uh, in uh, South Africa that have not actually been explored. And they have been written off as cattle rings. And there's all, so there's all these giant stone circles. However, uh, I just sent that to you, by the way. Awesome. But, uh, but there is, uh, through drone work that I got to do and on the ground work, I can tell you that there was a significant, like uh, there's thousands of square kilometers of ruins mm. that have never been researched. And it very much in the standard paradigm, this is just an, an extension of, it's so hard. Like we only have so much time to talk and I could go off about all, like we could choose a category of anomaly and on every layer, the snapshot of archeology, span the snapshot that's given to you by standard academia, just doesn't line up to the story that's actually in the ground. And it was said that a few thousand try a few thousand people, a few tribes, they, they made it down to South Africa, but you know, they didn't, you know, it was you know, not a big deal. I, I looked at thousands of square miles of ruins. Uh, I, we were able to drone. It was the winter months. So you can see the foundational structures, even without LIDAR. And these are not colonial structures for those wondering, these are not, from development in the last, uh, the, the Horn of Africa, uh, Cape Town has been occupied from pirates and empires for over 400 mm -hmm. years. And the, the great uh, Zimbabwean nation that we know very little about, the Egyptians, the Romans, lots of people went to South Africa. I went to the gold mining region where it said the Anunnaki and I, I got to stand there at Adam's calendar and look down a bluff that's almost 3000 feet tall into the most, uh, the largest uh, ongoing and continuous gold mining area in the world. I got to see that firsthand and it is truly a mystery in that uh, standard academia ignoring thousands of square kilometers of ruins that you don't even need LIDAR to see. You don't need satellite imaging. You don't need Sarah Parkak's global explorer team. You, I mean, you could just see so much just from droning and even Google earth. It is tremendous that here we are from there to um, the stuff that's being found in Guatemala and the stuff in, and by the way, all over South America, all over Central America. And then here we are at the, at the recot structure uh, of Atlantis, uh, of this, the, the eye of Africa, uh, which is the recot structure. It very, very, very much, very much looks like this is it. And it's and, exciting. You know, it, you know what it also reminds me of? It reminds me of Stonehenge. Oh yeah. The, the circle around the circle kind of design. Yeah. yeah. With and, one way in. Yeah. And and people and it's almost and like Stonehenge was like a miniature model of Atlantis. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting about that is that people forget that you have to go back to some very early 17th century, 1700s, 18th century lithographs for you to even get a clue what Stonehenge looked like when it was found in ruins after it had been forgotten again, you know, when it was rediscovered 
or at least paid attention to in paper in like the 1700s. The the Stonehenge you see today is not the Stonehenge that it was an interpretive reconstruction. Yeah. There, there are stones there that they just said, well, this just doesn't look like it should fit. And then there's weathering that shows just like the Sphinx, there is weathering at Stonehenge that shows thousands of years of weathering. And then you have a uh, Karnak. You should look up the standing stones of Karnak. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, those are all great examples of what we're looking at is possibly foundational uh, megalithic pillars left from megalithic structures that may have been other stone or other uh, woods or metals or things that burned and dusted and left. And all that was left after time were, were these weathered construction pillars that ultimately became so weathered, they look like nubs. But we know they weren't nubs. We know that they were sharp cut. We know that they were brilliant, bright. I mean, Stonehenge is not actually gray. I mean, people don't know about the colors of the stones and even the assumptions. Uh, I think we may have t- touched on it. There was the uh, large henge near Stonehenge. Yeah. That, yeah. So like what? It's like how many? It's almost two miles in diameter. Yeah. It goes like almost around. That's what reminds me of that the concentric circles. Yeah, so you got to wonder, it's like, is it just like this, to tie it back to this pictograph wall that's eight miles long, to this day, there are societies of simple tribal people that live in a, quote, natural way with the planet, which we assume is natural and not a giant terraformed engineered computer, because technology today is external. I think the society was so advanced that the nature itself, right down to the engineered soil, had you know it had electromagnetic properties. I think it was bioengineered, a lot of it, and we could can't get into it now. But we have uh, we have 155 tribes on the planet right now, give or take, estimated wise, from the Sengals on that island to uh, also all over Africa, all over Central and South America. There are tribes that still live in natural ways alongside our high technology life. They don't go to the doctor, not our doctors. They don't, they don't go to schools. They, they live like they lived 50, 80, 100,000 years ago, and we have nothing to do with them. Why wouldn't an ancient society of humans also still have? Because the idea was uh, the eye of Africa collapsed, that the recot structure was Atlantis, that Atlantis, uh, according to Solon, um, had, um, according to the story, mind you, this is a story they got from Egypt, right? So the Egyptians talked about this and whatever happened, happened about, it, it pretty much kind of lines up with either 9,000 or 12,000 years ago. So it sort of lines up with the younger dries. But who's to say that a traveling uh, single person or tribe came across the living, breathing city of Atlantis and mimicked their stone circles as a, as a shout out to the city. That maybe there was a point where ancient high technology humans, and I'm, I've actually never stated this before, I've kind of suspected that the stories of these, in quotes, gods that show up to all these different native peoples around the world after the big flood and teach them to 
fish, teach them to farm, teach them to uh, some basic medical things. I, I can't help but think it's like like an ancient high-tech Peace Corps, but mm-hmm. maybe there was a more open relationship with the survivors. Maybe they came out of their underground superstructures and or from air and they established a city on the ground again. It was a single city. It's possibly the recot structure. And there were simpler survivors that did show up in person. And we see in pictographs all over the world, these circles, there's always a circle. And I've always assumed that it represented a cymatic, a, if you take a metal plate and you use vibration. Yeah. In fact, I just posted a a podcast today about that. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just the possibility that I thought that cymatic polygonal construction and these circles that you see in pictographs were a memory of the tool of that frequency. Because if you vibrate stuff on a plate, you with sand on it, it creates the shape of the vibration of the frequency, Mm -hmm. which very much looks like a toolbox, like a set of sockets or something. And maybe, I mean, again, one of the ways, one of the fun things we get to do in throwing out the standard academic model and being more open to the facts that we find, it's a hell of a lot easier to connect a couple dots and really get your head around the idea. It's like, why are there swirly circles all around the earth? Does that swirly circle represent the spine of the recut structure? Was there a simpler people who didn't mess with the gods in the big city, but maybe they at least understood from the mountain range that's near the recut structure maybe they knew that it was that circled city and they mimicked it in building henges. Yeah. I mean, there's even the, um, the American Stonehenge, right? Oh yeah. Dennis Stone's place. Yeah. So the interesting thing, they call it America's Stonehenge, but it's not a, uh, it's not a structure like Stonehenge. It's America's Stonehenge because it does, it's kind of crazy, but it does line up with Stonehenge in, in England. It could be coincidence, but it, uh, of what they, they have a hundred acre plus site that Dennis Stone and his family have been, I know his last name's Stone, right? That's just, <laughs> uh, he's such a great guy and everybody should go visit it. It's in New Hampshire. And uh, I'm friends with Dennis. And so I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to not just get in business, but it's fascinating. If you look up and do an internet search about Stonehenge, what you're seeing is uh, a site that is, has astro alignments that are not coincidental. It's clear that either the moon, the sun, certain alignments are all showing up in this site that was found and uh, after some initial research in the 30s, it's been uh, managed by Dennis Stone and his family. They're the third generation to manage it. And you can go visit it. It's pretty damn impressive. And then you have uh, the, the other pieces of it are that they have active, the New England Association of Archaeologists. I, I can't remember what their acronym is, the N-E-E-R-A or N-M. They're going to kill me for not remembering. But uh there is active archaeological work going on at America's Stonehenge. And why I think that's so cool is because you're invited as a guest. To, you get to walk right by it. I mean, you get to see active archaeological work. And 
it's not just America's Stonehenge. Uh, there are, according to Dennis, at least 800 other sites that have been found by the New England Association and or tracked. 800 sites, and they use megalithic blocks. Some of it's mimic or survivor culture, possibly just stacking the stuff. So it looks, mm -hmm. on one hand, is it just Neolithic? Is it just primitive? We don't know. But we do know that it's not the only site in the New England area or even near Dennis. There's just in his area, there's over 800. And just on his land, there's a megalithic wall that is very mysterious. They do winter tours and you can walk around the site. You can pay attention to the active dig work that they're doing. They just completed uh, LIDAR, uh, geophysical and satellite imaging for the first time ever on any site anywhere in the world where they're going to overlap all the maps. And they have 100 acres to plan out digging. And they even think they have a dolmen on site buried. They oh, think wow. they've identified a dolmen. And even if it's not, it could just be a megalithic structure. And I think it's cool as hell that that could be uh, uh, one of a paradigm shifting locations that just doesn't get on the radar of actual standard archaeologists. Now it's being looked at, but it's not, if you include this site that they accept and the other 800 or 900 or gosh knows how many more, you, ad you again have to table facts along with Weyotlaco, Mexico. There were pyramids found in northern Mexico, too, that are under lava flows that are at least, they were in the 1922 National Geographic, which I actually own. That's There's a pyramid that's buried under a 35-mile-long, 17-mile-wide lava flow that had already been abandoned. And that uh, pyramid in northern Mexico is at least uh, 12 to 18,000 years old. And... Now all these sites, when you add them all up, like America Stonehenge, you're talking about a, a, a much more dramatically curious, interesting picture of our past that that just doesn't line up. Right. You know? It does. It's not not with what we've been taught anyway. No, not <laughs> at all. Um, but yeah, so this is. Uh, so I guess we didn't want to go. I guess. I don't know how you want to title it, but the recot structure, um, again, once you, here's the thing where when you're the casual uh, hobbyist at this, things to consider. Yes, it's height. But when you look at the city off the coast of Cuba and its depth, and we you look at the theory of hydrostatic plate shifting, which is the theory of tectonic plates, uh, a lot of ocean water that we see now, uh, leaked under the plate system and then through a hydrostatic shifting the plates shifted some shifted up some mm -hmm. shifted down it also caused a dramatic uh basically it's one of the alternative theories to the younger dryas uh that 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 this biblical flood was caused by this hydroponic plate shifting and so a lake titicaca ends up at thirteen thousand feet the recot structure ends up at like the 7,800 or so feet that it is above sea level. And that explains the, why it's not, you know, immediately at sea level. And then something else to consider is uh, check out Doggerland, check out New Zealandia, 
check out um, just maps of the world that would correspond to Doggerland in Europe. And what you see is a very, very different snapshot, including like um, Graham Hancock doing the dives off the coast of India, where it's well known that there were cities. And it appears that even when they dived it in the 90s, that there were cities that were megalithic in size and stone and style that are so complex and large, it shows a metropolis that makes everyone uneasy because it's at least 30,000 years ago. It's at the end. It's clear that the only way that that city could have been above ground or above water would be at the end of the last ice age. And so again, marine archaeology is going to be one of our Mm go-tos to really get a more uh, accurate snapshot. Uh, But right now we have this very incomplete snapshot of our not just geological history, but our social history. And we have these indicators in our genome that we were mixing with these other people. And why were we mixing? And then where it gets confusing again is I would, I personally am of the opinion that you should not rely on uh, any post flood mythology. So if it's coming from Sumer, if it's coming from the Bible, and if it's coming from, uh, well, and I think we need more time into uh, and discernment time for the Hindu texts. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you still can't use Sumer, the cuneiform tablets, and the Bible as references. I'm just saying that the genetic story of us needs to just, we just need to table all of our facts. And we need to be, we have to have the courage to start genetically testing the Paracas. And in very uh, healthy, well-established academic settings, instead of being afraid of, uh, you know, giving people Fs for having theories that didn't involve, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey. Right. (laughs) And monoliths in Utah. Ah, the monolith in Utah. Uh, well, what's your yeah. opinion on that one? I should ask you, is it bad to ask the host his first? No, it's not. You can ask me anything, man. Ah, it's everything imaginable. Exactly. Um, I love being, I love doing this stuff with you. This, uh, this, this monolith is just a stunt. I had no idea until Michael Hall pointed it out to me that apparently it's been there since 2014, 2015. And it didn't just show up. It's been there a while, but more importantly, I, I don't know if it was left there. My opinion is it was originally put up because it was going to uh, be a reference for a movie, like whether it be a remake or whether it be um, a new movie, like it was a promo stunt that just never got utilized or they decided, oops, you know, we put it in a place that was restricted. We're going to get in trouble. We're going to get fine. Let's not use it. Screw it. Let's forget about it. Or an artist, same deal. It's like, you know, they wanted some promotion for their art or their metalwork. So, you know, I, I would lean on those totally unfounded theories personally, and then it disappears. And then another one shows up in Romania. So it's either, a couple friends deciding to go a step past crop circles or again, it's a, a promo or it was a copycatter in Romania when it showed up three days later. And the one in Romania didn't look identical to the one right. in the 
you know, because that one looked like it had rivets. Yeah, that one you could see was definitely made by somebody. Well, somebody made it both. Probably. <laughs> <Somebody. laughs> uh, uh, we don't know whom, but I, I think that they were just good pranks. Uh, but but the one in Utah went missing, right? Yeah. Well, they said it was, you know, dragged off by somebody and, and setting it up. You know, I saw the ground that it was a tamped in little plate that they mm -hmm. had leveled and tamped in a plate. And then they set it and then, you know, it'd be pretty easy to drive out of there with chains on a truck to hide your tracks. And then, and then of course, if it's been there, as long as they're saying, then, you know, you wouldn't know who placed it. it it's been there for too long. And either way, it's, either uh i think a stunt for a product or an artist or it, it just there's just no rhyme nor reason around it otherwise it's and i i'm sorry but i'm hesitating to say how much i dislike 2001 space odyssey oh my gosh it is a little bit boring oh god it's not just a little bit it is just it is <laughs> it, it it's it, it's like you got told going into it that you need to know that this is a very deep movie and i'm like well well i'm smart i'm going to get it and then you get into it and you're fighting the urge to tear out your hair fall asleep and you're like i can't be like this because clearly it's super smart this 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 movie is I have to, st I, I'm just not getting it. I guess I must not be smart. No, it's a bad movie. It's a terrible movie. It's boring <laughs> as hell. That's the right answer. If you're bored, you are right. It is, uh, it, it, it's just this no-go. So if somebody wanted to put up a monolith as a shout out, or if they were going to remake that terrible movie, uh, or the next one, uh, also bad, but I, I just, uh, I don't care. It's just one of those things where I don't see any logic behind it. Uh, the problem is, is that, okay, I will speculate for a hot second on it being of any other advanced origins. Um, it's too based on the movie. Okay. It's something that somebody did as a prank because if it was something else uh you know nobody's done any readings on it uh we've not been able to study it it's not there i mean we are dreaming we are back at the pinhole in the book cover for me to tell you what the book's about that's that's what we know about this but right. it's either this or news about the kardashians <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like yeah, the archaeological them. equivalent. <laughs> it's like, hey, what about all that crazy news out there that's about new archaeological finds? But then there's also the monolith. Well, that just vaporized a lot of like valuable mental processing time. Right. <laughs> my, my guess is it was just an artist or something. Yeah, I agree. I don't I. And the cop, it was either a copycat or someone's pen pal in Romania that, uh, hey, I'll do one after you get rid of that one. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know what the trigger was, like why it didn't get, you know, why it wasn't a big deal prior, but it just wasn't. Distraction. So <laughs> it, it, it's got to be. But uh, I think comparatively, 
more importantly, this eight mile long wall in Colombia and the height of it and the pictographs on it depicting these uh, extinct animals. Uh, the, the issue with that wall is that it's written by, even if it was 50 people or 20 people that just lived in an area and just like, hey, this is our thing. We're going to hunt and, and live here and just draw on this wall until we mm -hmm. die. Even if that was it, it, it seems unlikely. It seems like it was more of a, it seems like it was more of a, a settled human establishment that clearly lived in the area for a while. And here's what's interesting. It indicates that I don't think that this was a prehistory class for super advanced humans. I don't think that they were brought out there to do this as the example to like, remember your ancestors. So I don't, I'm not saying it's a ritual or a sacrificial wall or a spiritual wall. This could be an open-sided Encyclopedia Britannica for ancient people that were simpler. And Absolutely. I mean, I think that they definitely, when they, when they make these um, pictographs and, and um, hieroglyphics and cave paintings, they were all intended to be there for somebody in the future to find them. Yeah. And so here you have this uh, group of people that may have then, what's important is, did they live very close? And okay, eight miles is a long way. Yeah. And the entire length of that wall, was it occupied by an eight mile long or a six mile diameter city? And if it was were they living on terra preta, engineered soil that's found all over South and Central America? And were they on the 20th foot level of that or were they on the first few feet of this engineered soil? And are there mastodon bones? Are there extinct horse uh, bones? Are there other animals that shouldn't be there in fire pits with carbon that can be dated? Are they sitting on, I mean, are they using old megalithic polygonal cymatic blocks as their sitting stones for the wiener roast? Or are they, <laughs> you know, we, we, we need to identify the society that may have been, you know, you turn from the pictograph wall, who says all those trees were there? Right. You know, that, that we, we're looking at a wall remnant of a clearly not advanced culture who was clearly living on a continent with engineered soil and megalithic construction. So this is a society that's living close to or near in some capacity, a more advanced human society. And so they are important. These people are important where they lived also indicates if they lived on an abandoned ancient high technology city or spot. Uh, there, there's a lot of different telltales that we can get when we start looking at the soil and looking at, uh, again, where their cities could be uh, chimneys from making pottery or bread, bread production. That's a huge one. That's a, that's a big find. You know, it's a big clue if you can find the ovens for making bread, but they could have been mud brick ovens. You know, they would have ultimately been destroyed, decayed, right. washed away, or part of a tree. I mean, we just don't, we just don't know. And so we'll have to wait and see, but it sure would be nice if there was more of a, a wiki archaeology 
that would, hey, uh, would somebody send the digital drone and drone this eight-mile wall? Uh, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls were not going to be released to humankind, they were being backed up by the Israeli government, and they were sent to uh, California, and it was the curator that was just supposed to store them that felt that they should be released to the rest of the world. It was not going to be public information as soon as it was. It was released illegally. And, and therein lies a question, how is it illegal to release, to release our collective human history? How is that anyone's possession? It shouldn't and, be. Right? And, and a lot of incredible research came from when the Dead Sea Scrolls general information was released because <laughs> there was a lot of eyes on it. And the same can be true, could be said of this pictographic wall, not that they're hiding it, but gosh, wouldn't it be neat instead of just a, an article from one uh, researcher or um, one reporter or two or five, if we could actually piece together pictures of the whole thing and we could all just grab a look at it. Um, I think that would be fun. That would be great. And uh, there are active ways to do archaeological work. Uh, Global Explorer, which was signed by Sarah Parkak, the winner of the TED Prize uh, a couple years ago. She's the one who used satellites to basically do like super space LIDAR, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the color of cooled mud bricks and stone buildings that are covered by sand have a different heat signature than the sand. And so using satellite technology, she was able to identify much to the consternation of Egyptian Egyptologists, uh, pyramids, cityscapes, details of the underground uh, remnants of what was around the Great Pyramids. I mean, I got to tell you, it's pretty dang incredible if you look up. Uh, Sarah's work and listen to her TED talk and look at, and if you go to Global Explorer, uh, which is what they started, uh, they've already searched, they have 80,000 citizen scientists. So what that means is for free, you can be trained and they've looked at like 18 million at this point uh, tiles. So what that means is, is once you're trained in, you are given uh, satellite images for you to go over and look for archaeological information, whether it's been looted, whether it looks like it has something underground, you are given tiles that are, excuse me, they're trying to reduce looting. So you're not told exactly where it is, but it's in South America and you plot your, you know, you look at your tile and you are helping doing initial survey work for archaeological finds. And it's called Global Explorer. And I haven't talked about this much, but I have over the course of the times that I'm doing interviews, try to encourage people to be uh, self-experimenters with their health, with like the stuff that Wim Hof is doing, but also that our world history is a search and rescue. It will resolve fights. It will resolve conflict because instead of just believing one thing or another, everyone wants to know their global history. And this is one of the ways to do it is to set out, learn some things casually, but also has some passion about some specifics. And there are ways that you can participate. One is 
to go to sites, take photos, post those, make those available. The second thing is genetic memory. People all have, there is a collective human consciousness. It's not a belief. It's an actual thing. We can get into the science of it some other time, but then we have a familiarity. Like sometimes people have deja vu or they think they've lived somewhere or had a past life. Uh, there's second sight, but there, there's things that, um, will trigger someone's memory that when you expose them to ancient writings, frequencies, archaeoacoustics, archaeoastrology, there's so many new sciences that are coming up, but your mind, your unique individual mind matters. And what you see or what your instincts think that one of those pictographs might look like might trigger a memory that you didn't know you had. Not that you were there, not that you were a caveman or not that you were part of that society, but you might have a perspective about what you're looking at. And in other ways, like Global Explorer, they have these programs where, you know, they're taking these exciting satellite images and allowing people to help uh, discern what this information is so that archaeological work can be planned and not just looting. And this is all super exciting stuff that's going on right now. Yeah, this is really cool. I'm just checking out this Global Explorer. It's yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, and I, I'm hoping one of these days to actually talk to her. I talk about her in my book. I think that work, uh, you know, the irony is of course, for all those out there looking for the uh, alternative narratives, has the military had access to this technology for maybe mm -hmm. 80 years? Yep. Uh, what have they already found? What have they already looked for? Uh, how much of this is uh, government backed uh, research and how many government uh, uh, sworn to secrecy archaeologists have already done work that aren't involved in a university program? You know, think yeah. about that. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to send her a podcast invite. Oh man, if you can make that happen, please let me participate. <laughs> You're more than welcome to if I get her on. Uh, that would be phenomenal. Uh, but people like this, uh, you know, they get pushback. Uh, I have a couple of good friends. I, I just, uh, I just love when somebody's changing the narrative and also doing work that impacts the global field of archeology span like she's done. Uh, again, I'm just a, a fan from a distance. I, I don't know her personally and it would be, uh, it'd be great to. Oh, we'll uh, see if we can change that. <laughs> All right. Leave it to everything is imaginable with Gary at the helm. You, you never know who I might be able to convince to come on. Oh, that's great. Well, you have quite, you have quite a spectrum of power. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Well, I, I, I'm, I can't think of a better capstone than that. And, uh, it would be interesting if again, with global explorers power, it would be interesting if that satellite or that positioning could be done to look at what's underground around that uh, recut structure or the eye of Africa. That'd be fascinating. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up. Where can my listeners find you? You can find me on notaliens.com. I have a new member section now. So now a new website. Get, yeah. So you can get a signed copy of my book and uh, you can pay a little less if you want to just go to Amazon you can uh, get it there. I have not aliens on YouTube, but that's just an ad. What really I got going now is on notaliens.com. You can 
get a sign. And by sign copy, I don't mean a pre-signed them. I mean, I sign a copy for you. So they're all unique. And then I have, I'm excited uh, to say launched a members only area. So if you'd like to join up for pretty much your large latte money, I'm offering a free book right now for a year membership. And then I'm also offering, um, a month-to-month membership, and it's going to have all sorts of exclusive content, including hopefully some conversations with you too. But I have uh, uh, private interviews and archaeologists and their work. I have some pictures up of Egypt right now. I'll be sharing um, stuff throughout uh, every week that's going to be new and just for the fans and just for members and as far as uh, Christmas goes, if you want to consider that your membership and get a free copy of the book and I can mail it to wherever you want. Damn. You know what I want for Christmas? Uh, not your two front teeth? No, no. I want a complimentary access to your member section. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Just total hustler. That's it. Yep. <laughs> I'm all about the free stuff, man. Yeah, that's it. And the minute, and I know what's going to come the minute I say I got t-shirts too. <laughs> I'll send nah, you the nah, I, w- I wouldn't hustle a t-shirt out of you because I sell t-shirts too. So. Oh, you do? Oh. Yeah, yeah it's ah. in my um, merchandise section. Gary, you've given me an idea about my free membership. In, in fact, the last graphic I made of you was you your face on my t-shirt design. Oh, God. Not seriously, right? Yeah. I, I'm on a t-shirt? No, no, no. The last graphic I made of you was on my t-shirt. But if you want me to make a t-shirt of you, I could do that. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's... Uh, and put it on my I'm website. Gonna to, I'm going to have to look at your... I'm going to have to look at your product wares now. <laughs> You're the first person... This is actually the first time I brought this up, by the way. So people do not know that they can... This is literally the first time... This is exclusive. Ever, yes, this is. So the the so nobody knows. I have not discussed it on any shows, and I have a lot of interviews coming up. But I have not discussed with anyone that you can actually get a free copy of the book, and also that I have a member area on notaliens.com. This is a first. Awesome. This is groundbreaking for me. Uh, I bet I bet. Well, you've learned about global explorer, the recot structure. I feel like between that and an eight mile wall of pictographs and general uh, paradigm shifting in our, uh, narrative of human history. I think we've covered a lot in everything imaginable time. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on today. Yeah. I appreciate you having me back. I'm looking forward to it again. All right. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined.
Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.